Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate reason for celebration. Many, many places in the New Testament we are told to rejoice, that is to celebrate. Uh, For instance, in the book of Acts, when the Gentiles hear the gospel, the good news of salvation, they heard this and they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and believing, believing they have eternal life. It is we, the believers, the ones who have come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, the ones who sing the new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be the kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. The true royals are the believing. The true royalty are those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And the true and ultimate celebration is around the victory of the person of Jesus Christ, that he has won the battle, that he has defeated sin, that he has defeated death and life and love and victory and peace and hope and joy come in the wake of this victory. This is no game. This is well-placed faith. True faith in Jesus Christ. There's the victory. There's the reason for celebration. When we get to the book of Acts, there's a lot of things that have happened, uh, and I'm speaking strictly in terms of history here. Uh, We have Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, their writings that give us the historical situation that we find ourselves in when we get to the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus himself has, as I've said before, accomplished the labors. All of the work is done as far as the, uh, the, the setting up for the rescue and the, the victory and the salvation and the forgiveness. There are a few things, of course, that remain that are the work of the church, to be sure. Uh, we ought to be about prayer. We ought to be about celebration Uh, rejoicing. We ought to be about worship. We ought to be about uh, evangelism. We ought to be about generosity and these sort of things. But those are things that come in the wake or in the wave, in the the follow-up to the victory that is won. But Jesus had lived 
the perfect life. Jesus had done what it was to be the faithful Israelite. Jesus had done what it was that God the Father had required of a human being. Uh, from Adam on up, be it Noah, or be it Abraham, or be it any of the descendants of Israel. This Jesus is that culminating personality, the one that comes in the, the line of Judah, the one who comes in the line of David, the one who is the inheritor of the royal throne. This Jesus has fulfilled the prophecies he is the one who then actually actively in a, a earthly lived out participatory manner did the 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 law that was prescribed uh, he lived by the word and heart of the law uh, he was uh, the Jew the it was the one who did what it was that was hoped and wanted and expected and desired. He was the one that uh, Moses had prophesied of, and well, all of the all of the prophets, in speaking um, of the one to come, spoke of this Jesus. And here he is. These these uh, uh, gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they lay down what it is that Jesus had done during the ministry years. Now, there's the, of course, Matthew and Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew and Luke, pardon me, who speak of the uh, the Christmas event. Uh, there are, uh, in the book of Luke, we have an instance where we see Jesus coming of age, if you will. Uh, there are a few other items interspersed hither and thither. But the ministry of Jesus, what Jesus came to preach and to teach and to demonstrate and to do and to heal and to bring about truth and bear witness. And these things are recorded for us that we can see them. We don't have all of it. John tells us that to write down all of the wonderful things that Jesus did, there isn't enough ink, there isn't enough parchment, there isn't enough space for it all. Jesus did all of this and more. And we get the opportunity to celebrate what it was that he did. It culminates in that final, uh, let's call it phase, that final phase. There are those who will break it apart and say that this is the crucifixion, and then this is the burial, and then this is the resurrection, and then this is the appearance, and then this is the... I myself have done that in order to be able to get a good, like, systematic handle on things as they happen and to parse them down and so forth. But it's all one contiguous whole. The, the uh, ministry of Jesus Christ meets its, its high point, its zenith, its climax in the uh, Passover event that, that Jesus basically... Uh, for lack of a better term, he hijacks the entire Passover event, the thing that makes for the true exodus, the thing that makes for uh, the true sacrifice of the real lamb, the thing that makes for the, uh, the, the, the way out of this world system uh, while not simply just being vaporized or escaping or something. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying there. The true way out of the this worldly, this secularum, uh, the way out 
is by faith in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean that you are removed from this world. It means that you are made to be entirely other from this world. You are one of God's own. You are in covenant with God and by way of the work of Jesus. That culminating zenith, that climactic work of Jesus, where he allowed himself as the true, one and only, ultimate seed of Abraham, seed of Isaac, seed of Jacob, seed of Israel, seed of Judah, seed of David, the ultimate, what, culmination, again, of all of these things. He comes to be that, and from him, he then becomes the source, the fountainhead for salvation, for covenant, for mercy, for joy, for peace, for hope. He lived that perfect life, again, fulfilling, doing the miracles, demonstrating the power of God, proclaiming the day of the Lord, uh, teaching all of the things that that were to, to come to pass in himself. And having done so, he was rejected. His own people rejected him. Not every single last one. You know, there were several of the the Jews that were um, listening with an honest heart. Peter, Andrew, James, John, these guys, and, and many others, Matthew, so forth. When they heard the call to come and to follow him, forsaking all, they followed him. Jesus taught them, showed them, demonstrated before them, and they then recorded this for us so that we would have it. And we get to see how some held to Jesus in faith, knowing that he is the Christ, knowing that he is the Messiah, knowing that he is the one who was prophesied of, about, that he is the long-awaited, expected one. John the Baptist knew that this is the Son of God whom we seek. But his people, by and large, his people rejected him to the point that they crafted his murder, a political assassination. The Jews then, taking it as the highest point of cursing, knew that it wasn't enough to just stone him to death, but to craft his death in such a way that he would die on a cross, on a tree, so that he would be known as being cursed. Not just any tree, not just any piece of wood, but we'll give him over to the Gentiles. We will let them have victory over him, which means he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. No, because the Messiah is supposed to have the victory over the nations, right? So we'll give him over to the nations. We will have the hand of the Romans to kill him. Because why? What was the accusation against him? The accusation that was hung above his head? Because he was the king, the king of the Jews. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. And having then rejected their God, 
having then rejected their Messiah, having then rejected the source of their hope. They were left to the destruction that came in 70 AD. But Jesus had victory, all victory. Having been passed over to the Gentiles, he was put to his on his own. All of evil was concentrated in on a single location, and evil thought that it had gained the victory. Justice had been thrown out. Mercy had been thrown out. Jesus Christ died on a cross. But why? Not because he had lost the battle, but because this was the key strategic stroke. The master hand. All of evil exhausted itself in this one move. And in one move, God showed how weak sin and death and evil really is. The Jewish courts had condemned him to death. The Roman courts had condemned him to death. All of the powers were against him. And God said, essentially, I'm a higher court and I am waiting to repeal uh, your decision. You have put a penalty against him, and I'm going to repeal your decision. Now, once somebody has died, that's pretty final. But God teared down this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus Christ lives because he is victorious. Jesus Christ lives because death cannot hold him. Death cannot defeat him. And from there, something amazing happened. Not only did Jesus prove himself, demonstrate himself to be the one who can defeat death, but all of those who put their faith in him are accounted as his. He paid the price. He has already died the death to sin. And now his life can be yours your life, you find so that you can see it. We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, Paul is speaking as a Jew, amongst Jews at the moment, he's speaking, he's writing these things to the Gentiles, of course, the the Galatians, but in the conversation point, he's speaking uh, in and with and to and by and and among the, the Jews and Peter, so forth, in the context. But he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. That is to say, it's not by being Jewish. It's not by following the dietary laws and regulations. It's not by following Sabbath observances. It's not by... uh, These things have been now uh, outmoded. It's not that they're bad or that they're ridiculous. 
It's that they've been fulfilled. It's all been completed in the person of Jesus Christ. So if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. That is, if we start applying ourselves to the law or the law to ourselves and thinking that we can somehow be better on account of the law, uh, circumcision makes us somehow closer to God, Uh, the dietary laws somehow make us closer to God, you know, we don't eat pork or whatever for um, uh, that kind of a reason. Because we worship on uh, uh, Saturday, which is the seventh day, and that is a dead end. It's been uh, uh, made to be redundant because Jesus has fulfilled it all. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. No, Christ is the provider of the ultimate victory. Christ is the provider of salvation. He's the one who rescues us. It's not by any of these other means or methods or manners or or ways. Through Jesus Christ alone. And though he has been forsaken by his people, though he has been rejected by the majority, though he has uh, been hung on a cross, a piece of wood, Though he has been disapproved of by those who wanted a certain kind of Messiah, and though his name has been used so wrongly in so many contexts for so many bad things, Jesus himself, the Christ, is our Lord, and he is mighty to save. He is the master. He does rule over everything. And though sin still has its way because people have yet to have surrendered themselves fully, that doesn't mean Jesus is weak. It means Jesus really does love. If he's not going to force and manipulate and still love you just the way you are, but too much to let you stay that way, if he's going to love you enough to give you himself, even though we, I, don't deserve it, I don't deserve it, you're just like me, Jesus saves. Jesus grants the victory. Jesus is our rescuer. And we, his people, need to recognize that he is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Master over all. And when he makes commandments, they are not made to be suggestions just because we love him, have these certain fond feelings for him. When he commands us, he commands us as ruler, as friend, yes, as brother, yes, but as 
absolute master and king. We have determined that we all too well in our sensitivities and our psychological approaches that what Jesus really meant was that he wanted us to be these satisfied creatures. That's not it. God will not be mocked. Hear me. God will not be mocked. Jesus is Lord, and it is for us to hear him, and to love him, and to obey him, and to adore him, and to surrender to him, and to worship him, and to celebrate him, and to die for him, and to live for him. Jesus is worthy, worthy of all of these things. He died the death. He finished it. He made the way. And because certain people reject him, is not reason enough to pat ourselves on the back because we have a certain fondness for him. People have rejected him, and we need to regard them as POWs. Those are people who are prisoners of war. Those are people who are not the enemy. The Jewish people are not the enemy. The Muslims are not the enemy. The various and sundry misconcatenations of uh, things Christian, they're not the enemy. They've been deceived. They've been fooled. But there is still hope. And we, we get to be the body of Christ. We get to be about his business. Why? Because Jesus won the victory. Because Jesus won the victory... He rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, all those who follow him raised from the dead. Jesus showed himself alive as a demonstration for 40 days amongst masses of people, sometimes 500 at once, more than. But then Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is on the throne of heaven currently and has ruled and reigned from there. Now again, he could come and just simply dominate and domineer and smash and tear down. But he has instead given us himself to rule by. He on the 50th day sends the Holy Spirit to the believers. And those who believe, all who believe and have a proper understanding... It's not enough to believe in some false Jesus. Just because Joseph Smith puts out a Jesus doesn't make him the Jesus. And just because people are sincere in the fact that they think that they believe something about somebody named Jesus doesn't make it true or right. But once somebody takes hold of truth, reality, the God of the Trinity, and takes hold of Jesus, the God who became man and met us here. When we get that straight and we put our faith in him, the God who is the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the believer. And in dwelling the believer, we have our salvation. 
We have our rescue. And we become, because of Jesus' victory, we become the body of Christ, the agents of Christ, the active participants in his ministry. And we go out into this world because we have the victory, because we are the royal priesthood of believers, because we have the truth, because we are the agents of change. We can bring about redemption, because we can bring about real rescue in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, having that victory and sharing that victory and being in these ways uh, contagious with the, the celebratory victory, sharing this love, we take it out into the world, and it doesn't matter if we are Jews or if we are Gentiles, if we are wealthy or if we are poor. It doesn't matter if we are slaves or if we are free, male or female. What matters is, are we the faithful believers in Christ? And now, I was just getting ready to take off into Acts chapter 11. We have a phone call from a man named Adam. Adam, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you doing there, bud? Good, doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm on a, I'm on a roll here. What, what's going on, man? I have a question for you. Fire away. I heard you talking about it, and um, it uh, came up in a small group at church recently. And yes, sir. Uh, I've spoken with you before some time ago on the phone. I remember you. And, oh, great. I enjoy very much what you're doing. I'm, I'm happy to tell you I'm in seminary now, too. But Outstanding, my man. That's an answer to <laughs> prayer, bud. Yes, it is. Um, this is what I've wondered in terms of Mormonism and salvation. Yeah. You know, I, I look at it... Uh, Joseph Smith built a lot of the foundations of that church out of his Masonic practices. And I've kind of wondered if since, in the same way that lower-level Masons aren't really aware of some of the implications at the higher levels, if people that are in the Mormon church, they do have access to the Bible, you know? And I don't know that they have the complex understanding of um, the ways that Jesus is polluted um, on a theological level, um, in say the Book of Mormon, um, and so I wonder: Do you think that there are Mormons that that read the Bible and come to a um, faith in Christ through having access to the Bible, um, or do you think, you know, by just by virtue of uh, being in that system, that that's not possible? Okay, uh, that's an excellent, excellent question. Please don't hang up because I'm going to want you to maybe nuance some things for me. But the quick answer is, yes, there are people who can and do. Uh, Sandra Tanner was one who was a Mormon and had an encounter with, uh, maybe you've heard of Lighthouse Ministries. She had an encounter with Jesus through the Bible. And here's the distinctive marker for somebody who encounters the true Jesus in the Mormon church. Here's the marker. They leave. <laughs> yeah. I mean that. Yeah. That's, that's the truth. Because they come to realize that the real, the true, the ultimate, the one who is the Jesus of the Bible 
saves them and the Holy Spirit does come upon them and they begin to feel such a, uh, a sense of the contrariety between truth and falsehood that eventually, though they try and they put up their hands and say, hey, 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 everybody, you need to know what it is that I've come across, they end up being either pushed away or they end up uh, finding their way out. So the distinctive marker of a Mormon who gets saved is that they no longer uh, hold to uh, Mormon theology. Now, I can say the very same thing for, let me give you another example of there are people who are in mainline denominations, but in their church they have a very polluted system that's going on in the church, and they wind up discovering that, wait, this Jesus is a whole lot bigger than our mainline denomination or this particular polluted understanding of the church, and they end up um, having a maybe a quiet rebellion, but they wind up then saying, I'm sorry, I just cannot be participating with this sort of... Um, uh, sick meaning like an illness, uh, this kind of sick version of Christianity, and they wind up leaving. You know, it's not that uh, Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist or or uh, Assemblies of God or any... They have maybe a better chance of hearing the truth there, but it's not as though one denomination has the corner on it. What it is, is the Christ of the Bible. So you are exactly right, and that is absolutely the Christ of the Bible, and his salvation is absolutely available to the Mormons through a Bible, and it's there, and they do get saved. But what we see is that there are real changes that uh, shift them from being what we would then continue to call a Mormon. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's I think that's a great answer. I am. Um, I'll just and I'll leave you back to your show and let you keep rolling. But um, I'll tell you just from uh, for those that don't know this from just my first semester of seminary and taking introduction to New Testament, introduction to Old Testament. Um, it's 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 staggering uh, to encounter what mainstream scholarship believes about the Bible um, and the that that really I think a lot of us don't realize that, that sitting in the pulpits of our, our mainline uh, denomination churches, you have people that don't hold to the authenticity of Scripture, um, you know, uh, don't hold to it being inspired. Um, and I, I just think you don't hear a lot about that uh, sitting in the pews, um, but that's what they're taught to believe even in seminary, uh, and it's, it's, it's quite a surprise. Yeah, yeah, and I, I beg of you to guard your mind, guard your integrity, hold fast to the, the Word and to the truth of Jesus Christ, because you're going into those halls of uh, learning where some of that is going to wind up being challenged, and that's, in a sense, good. The truth needs to be challenged so that the truth can demonstrate itself as truth. So don't give up on uh, the, the truth, the reality of the, the scriptures, and, and hold tight, of course, to the person of Jesus Christ and his salvation. And the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit. We've talked um, before. You have the Holy Spirit. I, I, I believe that firmly. And he will be your guide. So you listen to him. If something sounds a bit off, you hold to uh, his voice. That sounds a bit off, because probably because it is a little bit off. So, uh, Amen. All right, great to talk to you, and a great show, and hi to Virgil as well. You guys continue rolling and doing what you're doing. It's a great thing. 
Hey, thank you very much. Uh, please remember, wellplacedfaith at yahoo.com. Uh, drop me a comment or a question or a statement or something, and I'll correspond back with you because uh, there were some things that I uh, wanted to ask you as well and um, haven't been able to catch back up with you. So, all right, anyhow. Definitely. You okay, have a good remainder care. of your day, man. God bless you. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Good man, Adam. Uh, I say that because, well, yeah, it's hopefully encouragement to him. Um, and, and, of course, the name Adam means man, and he's a believer in Jesus, so that actually puts him on the other side of what kind of man. Um, he's a rescued man, that Adam. Okay, well, let me now uh, make the appeal that all of this is the, the setup to what is, what is coming about now. The book of Acts... We've laid down the foundation of what it is that Jesus has done and has accomplished. We've laid down what uh, the uh, commission was from uh, Acts chapter 1. You're going to go out and be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world. See the trajectory of that. We're going out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, out of the Middle East, out of into the extended portions of the world. This is intended to be a worldwide project. Maybe people don't like to think of it this way, but the Christians, the really, uh, I don't mean this in the, in the Muslim sense, by way of like uh, violence and jihad and takeover, but we're supposed to take over the world. That's, that's it. But when we take over, what we do is we bring peace and salvation and love and mercy and forgiveness, and unity, and these kinds of things right there. You know, and, and people have a, uh, an, an issue with a theocracy of that kind, but please be aware, it makes a tremendous difference what God is at the back of your theocracy. Is it the God who gave his only begotten Son so that the world could be rescued? That's good. Or is it the one who commands the, the crushing of dissenters, uh, you know, I, this is uh, this is a huge difference. Uh, you, you can't just lump all theocracies together; they're not all the same. But anyhow, the, the mission is: it will go out into the world, and that the whole world will be taken over in the name of Jesus Christ. He is the rightful heir of the world. He owns it all. He's master over all. All authority in heaven and on earth belong to him. This is the truth. This is not some religious point of view. This is the shape of reality is that Jesus died. He rose again from the dead. He has proven that he is the son of God, that he has the authority to rule and reign. He is the one that when it comes time for the judgment, he's the one who does the judging. He's the deciding point. He's the one that judgment turns around. There is no way to get to God the Father but through Jesus Christ. If we turn our back from him, we've turned our back on the only source of mercy and hope and peace and salvation. That's not his fault, you know. So he wants to rule what that means is that he would be allowed to rescue. That's wording it really softly, but that he would be allowed, that you wouldn't hold yourself ransom any longer, that you would, you would give up, you would lay down your arms and let him rescue you. 
and that Jesus then, being the Savior, will go out into the world. But he doesn't just simply rescue the POWs held by the, uh, the powers of this world. The reason why he forgives the transgressor is not just so that they can experience the peace of forgiveness, which is outstanding, but the thing is, is that he's actually recruiting into the kingdom. You were a transgressor, or even are a transgressor. I'm not going to be shy about saying that. I'm no different from you. The, your problem is that you're like me. But I hope that you have encountered the salvation of Jesus, because what that does is, it takes you, the one who was in rebellion against the King of Kings, the one who was in rebellion against the Lord, the one who had all authority. You're in rebellion, in treason. And the king captures you and then asks you, are you willing to covenant with me in peace? And if you will bow the knee to him and covenant with him in peace, then he can actually not only rescue you, but employ you, if you will, put you in his service. And you belong in the service of the king. That's why you were made. You belong in the service of the king. And having then been rescued, having then been turned around, having then been given the equipment, the kitting of his very self in the person of the Holy Spirit put into you, you then are equipped to now be his agent, his emissary, and you go out into the world and you, for lack of a better term, sounds violent, but you conquer for the name of Jesus. Now again, what I don't mean is what the uh, the the yeah the Christian Church from years gone by has had a just really bad um, uh, boy like the big black eyes of uh, the Inquisitions and all that stuff. Everybody is familiar with the the wrongs that the Church has done from times past and how we've misinterpreted, misappropriated uh, the idea of going and compelling them to come in. But we go out and through love and through sacrifice and through the message of Jesus Christ, we tell, we verbally proclaim. We don't just hand somebody a bottle of water and smile at them. We tell them the gospel, verbal proclamation of the truth, so that they can hear by way of a preacher the truth and make a decision for Jesus. Then they too can be rescued. And again, it goes out and it goes out and it goes out and it goes out. From chapter 1, there's the commission, chapter 2 of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit, the equipping, and then we watch as the progress happens through. Uh, chapter 3, we see healing is now spreading out and going, uh, that um, every one of us is being encouraged, if you will, that's a really weak word for it, but that we uh, turn every one of us from our wicked ways and turn to the Lord uh, we see that it's not without some difficulty. But seriously, what else is worth living for and what else is worth dying for? Uh, but the nations are in view here. So we start at the epicenter, Jerusalem, and we begin to work our way outwards, and the people find themselves being convinced uh, there is no greater thing that one could argue over than, you get to chapter 6, for instance, there's no greater thing that you could argue over than, my mother is not being treated fairly, she's not being fed. Why? Because these are the Hellenistic 
Jews. These are the, the, the Jews who are of uh, Judah, and then over here are the Hellenistic Jews. You can see that we have to start at the center, and it's going to go outwards, but first we need to start at the beginning. Just for real quick contra uh, contrast to that. The Jewish system seems to have set itself up in such a way that um, those who had more money, more promised land, uh, more notoriety, they were more holy. So you get to those who are the upper echelon, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And then among them, they have a competition of who gets to be the most holy. And among them, then they get to choose uh, amongst themselves who it is that gets to vie for the position of the um, high priest. And there seems to be something that competes to be at the epicenter. Whereas Jesus comes and he is the high priest in truth. And because of that, he begins to spill outwardly and he begins to share and build up. And that outward spilling goes from the one Jesus to the 11 disciples to the, and then bring in Paul too. He's actually the true 12th apostle, uh, not Matthias. We've talked about that. But through the giving of the Holy Spirit, this then spills out and goes to the other believers and goes out further. And you remember Acts chapter 2, well, who was it? They all had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and those, the Elamites, the Medes, the Parthians, the, those who were from other places who had come, they're going to go back to their lands, and it spills outwards again. So the, the Hellenistic Jews now are being treated with uh, uh, equality and, and evenness. And then um, we see that uh, um, Saul begins to persecute the church, and they all scatter. They all go abroad. They get pushed outwardly. And so as they go out, then uh, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word Philip goes to Samaria, and then we bump into the Ethiopian eunuch. He's an Ethiopian. He gets the gospel, and he goes on his way. Philip then continues to go to other places and, and, and carry on in, in different directions. Uh, we then meet with the conversion of uh, Saul, and Saul then, um, he begins to preach Christ, and he starts out uh, among the Jews, but then he gets to the point where he decides, all right, I'm going to the Gentiles. Peter's ministry. Peter goes to uh, Joppa, and he, as a, as a Jew, he is going to a centurion, to a Roman centurion in Caesarea. And again, the idea is that there's this continuing outward movement uh, and he has this vision that uh, the things that were unclean, according to the law, these things have now been made clean. We don't hold that against them, that they're Gentiles. Rather, God has made a way through the one true faithful Jew that the Gentiles would be brought in. So Cornelius and his family comes in. Peter says in chapter 10, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That is to say, the one who believes on him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And the Holy Spirit shows no regard for 
being circumcised or not circumcised, uh, having certain dietary proclivities or otherwise, uh, having a Sabbath observance on one point of the calendar versus another, whether your genetics are that you are Jewish or whether you're male or female. No, this isn't what matters. Uh, What matters is do you have faith in the one true rescuer of the world, Jesus? And now... The apostles and the brethren at Acts chapter 11, uh, they were uh, throughout Judea, they hear that the Gentiles also are receiving the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, they celebrated. No, no, they didn't actually. The confusion is still there. They took issue with him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter he begins to explain. He says, look, I went to Joppa. I was in a trance. I saw a vision. I see the vision of the thing that comes down in the four corners, and the uh, it, and it, there it is. It's the four-footed animals and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds. And I hear the voice. It says to me, kill, get up and eat. And that, that word kill is not merely like, you know, murder it or something. That's a sacrifice. Sacrifice it and eat it. But he says, no, 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 I'm still thinking in terms of the law and all things Jewish. And no, uh, we had to change Peter's mind, change his thinking. <clears throat> this happens three times. And then there are Gentile men who come to him and they take him. And who was I that I could stand in the way of God? If God gives them the same Holy Spirit, he gave the Holy Spirit to us, he gives the same Holy Spirit to them, what am I supposed to do? And when they hear this, they quieted down and they glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Hear this, the new covenant is not about Jews, it is not about being Jewish, it is not about the law, it is not about law abidance. It is about putting your faith in Jesus Christ. When you do, they receive the Holy Spirit. They, they then are inhabited by the Spirit of Jesus himself. They are empowered by the Spirit of Jesus himself. That's Romans chapter 8. In case anybody has a Trinitarian question right there, the Holy Spirit is named the Spirit of Jesus who comes and indwells us and fills us. The Spirit of Jesus then inhabits even the Gentiles... Yes, even the Gentiles. Does that mean that uh, he will not inhabit the Jews? No, of course he will. Of course he will. But the Jews has to come in the right way. He has to believe on the Lord. We read that in Galatians chapter 2 at the end. We are not saved, Paul says, in a Jewish context right there. In, uh, he's speaking to the Gentiles of Galatia, but in a Jewish context he is saying, even we know that we're not saved by the law, but rather by the grace of Jesus Christ. Anybody who will be saved will be saved through Jesus. There are people who have a problem. You guys talk about there's only one way to salvation. Let's reword it then. There's only one way to not be saved, and that is to not put your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't be the fool that goes that one wrong way. Go the way of trusting Jesus. Put your faith in him. 
God has granted to the Gentiles that they would have the repentance that leads to life, that there would be that change, that conversion, that turning from sin. And that doesn't mean stop doing your sins and then turn to God. What that means is that you take your focus off of the things that are sin. You thought that drink would satisfy. You thought that religion would satisfy. You thought that sacrifices and temple observances would satisfy. No, it is the sacrifice that God made of the person of Jesus that satisfies. Turn from those foolish things. Turn to the thing that actually does the the true business of salvation. That is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His salvation. So then even after this, we see in chapter 11... Those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, that they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they're speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But, revolutionary change, verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, that means Gentiles, not just you know people from Greece or something. That's all the other ones. They're preaching the Lord Jesus to them. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and then they do the right thing. They send a mature Christian believer off to Antioch. When they arrive, they witness the grace of God. He rejoiced and began to encourage them with the resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and there were considerable numbers who were saved. He goes and recruits Paul, uh, also known as Saul of Tarsus. Come, I need help with these guys, please. And it's under their tutelage that they are first called Christians. Those that followed the Messiah, those that followed the Christ are first called the Messiah followers, Christians, little Christs, here under Paul's watch care. Now at this time, there's also prophets who come from Jerusalem, and they come and say there's going to be a uh, 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 famine all over the world, and so do they stop caring about Jerusalem? Do they stop caring about Judea? No, they don't stop caring about them. But uh, uh, they are not the epicenter. It goes out into the world. Now, I'm going to skip over chapter 12 for just a moment. or to, Well, I'm going to skip over it for the remainder of today. But going to chapter 13, Paul then goes on a missionary journey. The whole idea of missions is the idea that everybody in the world needs salvation. Don't mishear that and think only those people over there need salvation. People that you rub elbows with need salvation as well. They go out into the world. They go out and preach. They go out and teach. They go out and offer reproof and correction. They go out and they try to set straight the people who want to hold to uh, the, the old ways. The, the new covenant has come. Come to the new covenant, the true covenant in the person of Jesus. And so we have um, Paul speaking with those in the uh, synagogues during the Sabbath. And though he teaches them, though he shows them, they really don't want to hear it. You know, they, they have some 
uh, inclination towards it, but yet they don't want to commit themselves to Jesus as the way of salvation. God has brought about the promises. He has brought about uh, the, the Savior of Israel, Jesus, from the descendants of David. He has brought about this man according to the promise. God has brought forth to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And they still wind up rejecting him. The point of this is now going to be that when we get into chapter 13, they are told, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets doesn't come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which will never, you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Paul and Barnabas were going out. They kept begging them to hear, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't. If you do not go the way of mercy, if you do not go the way of the salvation in Jesus, forgiveness of sins is available. If you opt out of that by not believing on Jesus, then the calamity is yours. But they go to the Gentiles. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Jews, however, were filled with jealousy. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are going to the Gentiles. Because that's what the original covenant was intended for, to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles hear this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many... Those Gentiles, the ones that the, the named ones, the Gentiles, those that had been appointed, the Gentiles, they believed and were saved. This message is going out to the ears of many. Hear what I am saying. Be filled with the Holy Spirit by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other hope for salvation. This is the truth. This is the shape of reality. This is what reality actually looks like. Even if it seems improbable to you, it's very simple. Repent. Whatever it is that you think is going to do it, whatever it is that you think is going to satisfy, whatever it is that you think is going to save you, repent. That means turn from that and turn to the one true provision, the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And if you will trust that what he did is sufficient to save you, then you will be saved, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Having the Holy Spirit, it is then for you to go into the world and be his change agents. Trust in the Lord and be his body. This is well-placed faith. Crucified